Well, good evening, Ozark Baptist Church. How are we? All right, talk to me. We're doing good. All right, I'm going to return the favor. Trey, thank you for giving a shout out to me and Jessica. Shout out to Morgan and Abby uh, for welcoming in a precious baby as well. Good to see y'all. So, uh, the sermon this evening is entitled "Vindication from God." Vindication from God. I want you to try to do something for me this evening. Imagine that you're in a court of law and you are defended on trial, accused of a crime that you did not commit. You know that you're innocent. Now, what's better as you're in this court of law? For you to cry out loud, I'm not guilty. I know I'm not guilty. Or for the jurors to declare, he's not guilty. What's better? For you to beg and plead, I'm not guilty. Or for the judge in the courtroom to say, I've seen all of the evidence presented, not guilty. What matters in the end? Which verdict has authority? Which pronouncement will actually affect anything? Think about that. In our text today, we're going to be addressing the topic head-on in the life of King David So this evening, I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 26. If you don't know where the Psalms are, uh, the Psalms are located right between the books of Job and Proverbs in the Old Testament and should be on page 484 in the Bibles, uh, actually right beside the sound booth if you don't have one. So uh, that'll be on page 484. Uh, In her book entitled Worshiping Through the Psalms in Every Season of Life, Courtney Reisig argues that the Psalms speak into a static time in Israel's history where we get a behind-the-scenes look at the mental processes and emotions of real people in that story. And instead of providing new details, the Psalms slow us down and tell us how God's people are to feel about the stories happening all around them. And we're getting just that in this Psalm, in Psalm 26. It's no joke. It's a raw up close and personal, emotionally gripping psalm in the life of a real person in Israel's history, God's anointed King David. So Psalm 26 is traditionally located in what is known as Book 1 of the Psalms. It covers Psalms 1 to 41. And Book 1 consists of psalms that are prayers that focus on the trials and life of this anointed King David. And we get one of our trials In this particular psalm that David himself penned, as you can see in the superscript of the Bibles that you are holding. So, Psalm 26, starting in verse 1, read along with me, and we'll be reading from the CSB this evening. Verse 1. Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. For your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides, Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with the men of bloodshed and whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. 
My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. If you're looking for a main idea from our passage, and if you're note takers there with your worship guide, here it is. The only hope of vindication for God's people comes from the Lord. The only hope of vindication for God's people comes from the Lord. And from our main idea, I want you to see three aspects in our passage, three aspects of vindication that come out of our passage in the life of King David's plea to God. Uh, The first aspect is actually in verses 1 to 2, the plea for vindication, the plea for vindication. The second aspect is the reasons for vindication, and that's going to be stated both positively and negatively in verses 3 to 8. And then lastly, we have a third and final aspect of vindication. We have the hope for vindication found in verses 9 to 12, the hope for vindication. So let's look at that first aspect together in verses 1 to 2, the plea for vindication. Notice the first three opening words of verse 1, vindicate me, Lord. That's basically the whole point of this psalm. David is coming before God, Yahweh, whose name is mentioned six times in this psalm. He's the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and David is coming to him in prayer. And in that prayer, he is not just vaguely saying something aloud, but he's going to the covenant-keeping God, and he's crying out to him alone for vindication, for acquittal. He's going before God, the righteous judge, and he is saying, God You know what's going on. Make this right. Clear my name of false accusations, of false charges from my enemies. You know, it seems that a group of people in David's day, uh, presumably of influence and power, actually according to verse 10, uh, this group of people, his enemies, they're hurling false accusations against David. Now, when we read the passage, We don't really know the specifics or the extent of those false accusations. But what we do know is that in David's mind, those accusations were a joke. They were nothing more than a baseless tabloid TMZ hit piece in David's eyes. There was no credibility whatsoever, no concrete substance in those accusations towards God's king. We know this is true based on how verse 1 unfolds, says this, again, vindicate me, Lord. Here it is, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. David is stressing that that he's lived in integrity, not his whole life, but in this situation. An integrity that is just mentioned in Psalm 25, verse 21, that says this, May integrity and what, is, and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. David is not arguing, whether it's in Psalm 25 or Psalm 26, he's not arguing for moral perfectionism. He's not arguing that he is sinless in and of himself. Already in Psalm 16, verse 2, David has already said that he has no good apart from God. And in the preceding psalm, Psalm 25, David continually confesses his sins. David continually acknowledges his spiritual condition apart from God. Look at verses 6 to 7 in Psalm 25. Remember, Lord, your compassion. 
in your faithful love. For they have existed, existed from iniquity. Here it is. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion in keeping with your faithful love. Remember me because of your goodness, Lord. Or look at verse 11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Or verse 19. Consider my enemies, they are numerous, and they hate me violently. See, there's something specific going on, right? There's something specific. David is undoubtedly aware of his sins and his shortcomings. He's not boasting in himself. He's also, though, not only is he not boasting in himself, but also notice this. He's not in a perpetual state of defensiveness in light of his enemies, right? He says, I, I've walked in my integrity. My words match, match my actions, and my actions match my words. David is saying, through and through, I'm a complete man with a single-minded focus on the truth. So that begs the question then, if David is living in singular integrity here, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of that in this psalm? Well, it's the person who doesn't seek in faith wisdom from God. According to the book of James, James chapter 1 verse 8 describes that person as a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. It's the person, according to James chapter 3, who is not marked by wisdom from above. It's the one who walks in impatience, ignoring the coming of God. So here in our passage in Psalm 26, integrity, think about it like this. Integrity is a posture that says, I am complete, I'm single-minded, I'm resolute, I'm focused on God with my words, matching my actions, and my actions matching my words. It's really a deep-seated confidence that says when false accusations from my enemies, right? Enemies can take different forms, right? But when false accusations come my way, I have delighted in and meditated on God's word like the psalmist day and night with my whole being. My whole being prizes his word. So what we're seeing is that David pleased to this God he is trusting in this God, and he does so without throwing in the towel in the face of his accusers. You know, perseverance in the Christian life, despite false accusations, it's not really anything new. It's not even simply unique to Psalm 26. In the storyline of the scriptures, in the storyline of the Bible, it's always been a dominant theme. I mean, consider for a moment Sunday School 101, right? Daniel chapter 3. There we see the Chaldeans whispering in this ruthless ruler, Nebuchadnezzar's ear. They're whispering false accusations concerning three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which wasn't their original names, but names that they adopted according to Babylonian culture. And in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 3, it says that these accusers came forward and maliciously accused these Jewish men. There was no basis to what they had to say. So these three men would come before Nebuchadnezzar because of these ridiculous, malicious accusations, and they're faced with two options as they come before Nebuchadnezzar. Either to be thrown into a fiery furnace or to waver in their trust of God. 
What happens? Well, they chose to trust in the Lord without wavering and resolutely stated before this ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, and said this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And what do we know as the episode unfolds? God vindicated these men in light of false accusations. Now, if we fast forward into the New Testament in the book of Acts, amazing things have been happening in the first century. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of, uh, right hand of God after bodily appearing uh, to others in his resurrected uh, body. So he ascends to God's right hand. We know that the day of Pentecost happens. People are being saved. They're being added to the church. Disciples are being multiplied. And the believers had everything in common during that day in the first century. But something, as the, book of Acts, uh, as the book of Acts unfolds, something tragic would soon take place. Like the Chaldeans or David's accusers in Psalm 26, some wicked men instigated, stirred up, and set up false witnesses against one of the early Christians of that day, Stephen, and he's brought before the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 6. In the following chapter... Stephen would give a sermon out of this world. So like, if there's a perfect sermon, guys, right? it's Sermon on the Mount from the God-man, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature is Jesus, right? That's a perfect sermon. And I would say next to that, we have a sermon steeped in biblical theology. And in this sermon, Stephen would call these men his false accusers. He would call them to repentance and expose their sin. And instead of repenting of their sins and putting their faith and trust in Christ, they stoned to death Stephen. And what was Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7? They stoned a man of integrity. It's interesting is that Stephen did not waver in his trust with God. And God will, on the last day, even with this first century stuff going on, on the last day, God will vindicate Stephen. So what about you this evening? I want you to begin to ask yourself this. Does your trust in God have limits? Does it have limits? Perhaps you're in a job where you have walked in integrity and in character. But you see others around you getting promoted to the next best position in the company. It stings. And perhaps it's people who have tainted your name to your boss or the powers that be to ensure that you will not get a raise or the position that you've longed for. Friend, let me ask you, will your trust in this good God have limits? Or maybe you're in the medical field. You provide quality patient care. Maybe you're a team player in your job and on your floor. And now HR is requiring you to bow the knee to programs of inclusivity for you to compromise your convictions on issues like gender and sexuality. And so you refuse to comply. And you begin to experience, even from coworkers, false accusations 
that you're nothing more than a religious, closed-minded bigot. And so you begin to be on the experiencing end of those false accusations. And now you find yourself in a suffocating, isolated position at work. No friends. No more homies in the medical field. Will your trust in God then have limits? Or maybe you're a child this evening. And you know that you got in trouble for something you did not do. Trust me, parents, like it happens. Listen, the Lord is so kind and knows everything so deeply. He's omniscient. That even that, as small and insignificant as we may think that may be, God will vindicate that on the last day. Will your trust in God have limits, kid? Have you been the subject of false accusations in your home, at school, or even in the church? If so, will your trust in God have limits? My Christian friend, hear me. Do not waver. As we've already seen, David is not claiming that he's sinless. In verse 2, he seeks out God even to do a thorough search in his life to see, that if he, to see if he may be in the wrong. He's inquiring God to see if he's missing something that he isn't seeing. And so he says in verse uh, 2, and we get language that says, Test me, Lord, and try me. David is urgently inviting God to do something remarkable. He's asking God to sanctify him, to make him holy in this fiery trial that he's experiencing. Now notice this, David is not saying to God, God, remove this trial out of my life. Instead, what David is saying is, use this trial to sanctify me. You know, that's totally different, isn't it, church? Test and try are words used in the Bible to emphasize refining precious metals like gold and silver. They are the words that describe the process actually seen in Psalm 12, verse 6, where the psalmist writes, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You see, David wants God to use this trial to thoroughly search every, every crevice of his life to see if there are any impurities that he's missing, to make him holy as the Lord is holy. It's definitely what you see. Far from running from the trial or sitting in a pool of self-pity, David directs his attention to God, not his trial, and he says, God, use this moment right here. Look into my life and see if I'm wrong according to your righteous judgments. See, David knows that God's words are pure. His law is perfect. His testimony is sure. His precepts are right. And so David asks God to test his whole being, to remove any dross, any worthlessness or rubbish, rubbishness in his life. Friends, listen, God uses trials to refine his people. And some of y'all know what I'm saying. Because you felt that close and up personal in your life. God uses trials to refine his people. Beloved, is that how you view the trial that you were in, that you presently are in, or that you will be in? The hymn, When Trials Come, gets at the heart of this. Listen to some of these lyrics. 
when trials come, no longer fear. For in the pain, our God draws near. To fire a faith worth more than gold. And there his faithfulness is told. And there his faithfulness is told. Trials take different forms, don't they? It may be different from the person to your right or left or in front of you, behind you. But they do take different forms for different people in their lives. Maybe it's a sudden diagnosis. Sudden job termination. Difficult breakup. An abandoned husband or wife, a wayward prodigal child, it's a surgery gone wrong, it's your parents disowning you because of your conversion in Christ, or in David's specific case in our psalm, it's a trial of false accusations. So what David does, he takes the present moment that he's in for sanctification, for the refining of his actions, and, notice this, his affections. Is that how you view your trials? As a God-given opportunity to be conformed into the image of Jesus. I love how John Calvin puts it. Listen to his words. And this we must especially bear in mind if we would desire to obtain the approbation of God that when unjustly persecuted, we must not only abstain from retaliation, but also persevere in a right spirit. Who you turn to and how you handle the trial you're in reveals if you're persevering in the right spirit. Person and posture are inextricably tied together in the Christian life. David does this in his plea to God for vindication and he is persevering in the right spirit despite these false accusations. Friend, let me ask you this. When the world looks into your life as you experience false accusations, when you experience adversity, what might that world conclude about how you handle trials in your life? Just a second aspect. Verses 3 to 8, the reasons for vindication. The reasons for vindication. In the opening verses of David's plea for vindication from the Lord, we are left wondering, how can David commit to himself this unwavering trust in God? Really what serves as the motivation to turn to God to melt away any impurities in David's life? Well, look at verse 3. For your faithful love, ESV says steadfast love, but for your faithful love guides me, meaning It's ever before my eyes. For your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. David is not turning to his left to hear the noise of his accusers. He's not even giving them the time of day. And he's not turning to his right to allow this trial that he's in to deny the goodness of God. Instead, David's gaze, David's eyes, David's focus, his attention, are captured by what is known as the hesed or the emet of God. So God's hesed, rendered in the ESV as steadfast love or here faithful love in the CSB, and God's emet, which is rendered as God's faithfulness and can sometimes mean God's truth. These two concepts keeps David from fixating on his accusers, their accusations, and his present circumstances. And instead of 
focusing on the lies. David is fixed on the truth of God and his character. The why, how, and what of his plea to God for vindication is found right here in this verse, in verse 3. Now, hesed and ebet, these Hebrew words, had rich meaning in God's dealing with Israel, especially the word for faithful love here, hesed. It occurs a little over 250 times in the Old Testament. And what is striking is that there really isn't an English word that captures this Hebrew word in its entirety. That's why you get multiple words here. Faithful love, steadfast love. Uh, That's why most translators actually use more than one word to capture the meaning. Or even think of something like the New American Standard, loving kindness. But what we're still left wondering is, Why does this hesed in verse 3, this faithful love, how does it capture David's attention? Like, like how does it keep this before his eyes? At the very heart of this word, it's God and his character. It's what he does in covenant relationship to his people. God, in showing hesed or faithful love, is binding himself to act toward his people in certain specific ways. And it's also showing that he is completely faithful to his self-commitment. David knows that, that God is who he says he is and that God acts in such a way that is consistent with his character. You know, Psalm 26 verse 3, think about it like this. It kind of serves as a callback to Exodus 34, 6 to 7. So where we find the people of Israel, they've been rescued from Egyptian captivity by God and all of his power and dominion and glory. And we begin to see is that as time unfolds, they're marked by God's people who were just rescued, for crying out loud. They're marked by bitterness and complaint. And they're so just, you know, ridiculous that they would even suggest that Egyptian slavery was better than their present circumstances. That is mind-blowing. They were ungrateful towards a gracious God, which is why God likens them as stiff-necked people. So in Exodus 32, what do the people do? Instead of repenting and and, and, um, showing Gratitude towards God, what do they do? In Exodus 32, they construct worship and sacrifice to an idol in the form of a golden calf. Instead of wiping them out immediately in his holy, just wrath, God showed mercy. And in two chapters would say of himself the following in Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And what did, here's what's interesting, and just, it's really striking. What did Moses do upon hearing this pronouncement of God in hearing What God says about himself in verses 6 to 7, verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth, and he worshipped. What does David do in reminding 
himself of this episode that we're hearing about in Exodus 34, right? In Psalm 26, verse 3, here's what we see. David is keeping this truth of who God is before his eyes. And as we will see, he will go to worship this God, not just by himself, but he's going to worship this God with his people. Now, you may be thinking, maybe, yeah, so what? God's faithful love, his steadfast love, I'm sure it runs out, runs dry. I'm sure it has an expiration date. That was really back then. This is 2023. That stuff that you're talking about, man, is, is fossil-like. It's archaic even. It's outdated. That was simply just for David. There's nothing for me. Listen, the writer of Lamentations, in Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, reminds us of this. The faithful love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you find yourself this evening on the experiencing end of false accusations, maybe you find yourself in the midst of a trial, know that you have a well that you can draw from that never runs dry, that never stops, and it's found in him. It's found in the Lord. Don't allow noise in your life to block out his ever-present faithful love and faithfulness to you, beloved. In focusing on God, David then states his reasons for vindication negatively and positively. So he states his reasons negatively in verses 4 to 5 and positively in verses 6 to 8. Look at verses 4 to 5. David writes, Do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers and I do not sit with the wicked. So God's faithful love and God's truth his Hesed and Ebit in verse 3 keep David from identifying with these phonies and accusers in verses 4 to 5. Remember, God's faithful love is before David's eyes, not the accusers, not the accusations. And so if God is before David's eyes, he is going to go wherever God is to be worshipped and proclaimed. David is not going to turn to his body and mind towards them Look at David's actions, actually, in verses 4 to 5. It says, I do not sit, I do not associate, I hate, I do not sit. Think about that language. Does that remind you of anywhere else in the Psalms? Literally, the opening verse, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What's interesting is that David, when he's thinking about these accusations and these accusers, but yet before his eyes is the steadfast love of God. What's so interesting is that David does not want to be in relational proximity with these people. Look at the, the, the descriptions in verses 4 to 5. Are they described as simply misunderstood, spiritually neutral, which, by the way, is not even possible? Or are they described as God's people with just simply a different interpretation of things? No. They're described as men of falsehood, of worthlessness. 
They are hypocrites. Think about David, right? His words are matching his actions. His actions are matching his words. Well, then we have hypocrites, meaning their words, they're putting on multiple masks for different people. Their words aren't matching their actions. Their actions aren't matching their words. They're really hiding and concealing who they really are. You have a crowd of evildoers. These are people that are conspiring together to do what? More evil against God's anointed. And then you have people who are described as wicked, just morally deplorable. Beloved, these verses are shouting out to King David and to you, Ozark Baptist Church, this evening. They are shouting out the following, don't take compromising detours in your life. Don't take compromising detours. David is saying, my eyes are before the faithful love of Yahweh. I will continue on the holy path. I will not be moved by my surroundings. I will be resolute. I will be single-minded. My thoughts will be not held captive to those who hate God. I will not take compromising detours towards the path of sanctification. It's not happening. My Christian friend, what are those compromising detours that come to mind for you? What are those compromising detours that immediately come to your mind when you have a conversation with your spouse or another church member? Is it perusing that forbidden website? Is it to get your hands on the latest juice of someone by way of gossip and slander? Is it to cheat on your taxes? Is it to budge on hot-button issues in school to fit in with the crowd? Can you yourself identify by the help and work of God's Spirit in your life? Can you identify those compromising detours? And do you have others, more importantly, do you have others in your life to help identify those compromising detours? This is why, this is one of the reasons why the local church is essential to the life of the Christian. Because on our own, we readily see the blind spots in our life. The compromising detours or the patterns of sin that we need to flee from. Contrary to popular opinion, look to the person to your right and left. You actually need them. You need one another. You need others speaking into your life to keep you on the holy path of Christ-like conformity. Speaking to Jewish Christians in a time of intense trial, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.13 writes this. But exhort one another. It's hard to do one another when, if, if you just think like the Christian life is in an individual category, right? Like one another, that is with the understanding and idea of a covenant community. So he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me ask you something. Who is exhorting you, Ozark Baptist Church? Is anyone exhorting you, my Christian friend? And are you seeking out people to identify compromising detours in your life? Is that something that you intentionally do? I would encourage you to daily utilize and pray through your member directory. Find members in that directory to walk alongside you so that you can identify compromising detours in your life, so that they can identify those things for your spiritual good, because you're not meant to live the Christian life on your own. Or think about it like this. 
Ozark Baptist Church is going to have a members meeting on June 8th. And Lord willing, you're going to be voting members in to membership at Ozark Baptist Church. That is a wonderful way to write down phone numbers and emails, pray for people, but also uh, to invite people into a discipling context here at Ozark Baptist Church to walk alongside someone in the Christian life to help identify compromising detours as you're one day, one step closer to heaven together. See, David is appealing to God. He's focused on God's character, and he's headed not with God's enemies, but he's actually headed along the holy path of Christ-like conformity to worship God. And he states in verses 6 to 8, the positive reasons for vindication. It says this starting in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Notice all of the terms here in verses 6 to 8. It is language of worship, isn't it? There's key terms, washing of hands, the altar, grateful proclamation, exuberant excitement over God's actions in history, and notice, loving his house. Instead of succumbing to the wickedness of men, David delights in the reverential worship of God. In verse 6, David is washing his hands, signifying that he is not guilty of whatever these evil people are saying about him. He's clean in the matter. And in going around the altar, David is showing us that he needed to be cleansed and to offer sacrifice to God as a means of ritual purity and gratitude towards him. And as the passage continues... Notice David cannot keep silent about the God who will vindicate him either in the present day, as Psalm 26 is written, or on the last day. David is, in verse 7, raising his voice in thanksgiving and telling about God's wondrous works and deeds. No doubt that these works of God consisted of the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is within the earth simply by the sheer word of his power. No doubt these deeds consisted of forming a nation out of Abraham simply out of his good sovereign pleasure. No doubt these deeds consisted of God rescuing Israel from Egypt that we just uh, referenced in the book of Exodus and finally bringing them to the promised land. You see, the works of God were worth telling about because it showed David that God is a God who makes good on his promises. And David, for sure, likely praised God for what he had done in his own life. Think about that. Uh, God rescued David from Goliath and from the hand of King Saul, forgiving him of his sins of murder and adultery and much more. Again, David is not sinless. And of course, he's praising God for making him king simply out of his unmerited favor, out of his grace. Friends, whether we're considering what God has done in David's life, or in Psalm 26, or in the book of Exodus, or in Genesis, or under the new covenant, and God reconciling a people to himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, guys, God is worth praising. Amen? But it doesn't stop there. David wants to make clear that he loves God's presence. He loves where he loves where God is. 
the place where his glory resides or where his glory dwells. You see, David is headed to Jerusalem to worship God. He is going to the place that James Hamilton describes as the temple to be. The tabernacle had already been destroyed, and in the future, David's son Solomon would construct the temple. And so the house in verse 9 is just simply signifying God's presence in Jerusalem. And here's the thing. David isn't going to worship God privately. Say that one more time. David is not going to worship God privately. He is going where God's people are to worship God with them. He's not going to associate with the assembly of evildoers. He abhors them. He is going to the great assembly to tell one another of God's wondrous deeds and to bless his holy name, according to verse 12. Let's look at that. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. Friends, don't you see it? The worship of God is not a, almost what is just kind of popularized in this state, or at least in southern states in the Bible Belt. The worship of God is not a, that's between me and God, private endeavor as if you're embarrassed of him. The worship of God is a corporate endeavor that makes much of him. Under the New Covenant in the New Testament, there are numerous metaphors used for the local church, everything from a body to the bride of Christ. But one of those metaphors for the local church, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, listen to the Apostle Paul's words in those verses. Do you not know that you, you is not in the singular, you is you all, plural. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. So if you're in Christ and a part of a gospel preaching local church, Lord willing, here at Ozark Baptist Church, you are that temple that David is pointing to in Psalm 26. OBC You are that temple that David is pointing to, that great assembly. If David is headed towards the temple to bless the Lord with God's people, he, in effect, is communicating a sense of urgency together with God's people. That's so important, that idea of a sense of urgency. Let me ask you, church, do you see that same sense of urgency? Do you have that same sense of urgency in your life together with God's people here at Ozark Baptist Church? Do you see the importance of not neglecting to meet together and stir one another up in love and good works as the temple of the living God? God did not save you, my friend, for you to coast the Christian life on your own. He saved you to be a part of a people in the context of the local church. So to deny meeting with God's people is in essence or in effect to say that Christ's blood was efficient for only yourself. His blood, however, was shed for that great assembly, for his people. So ask yourself, do you want to be with that people? Do you long to be with that people? 
If not, what might that say spiritually about your standing before God this evening? So like David and God's people, we are gathering together for a singular purpose. For God and his deeds or works to be praised with thanksgiving in Christ by way of the Spirit. And we do this through the preaching of the word, praying of the word, the singing of the word that we just did, and that word that will be displayed in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. David is not going to God's house to be alone. He is going to be with God's people in God's presence in worship. Why? Because David loves God and his people, and God and his people go hand in hand. So ask yourself, do you love God and his people? Do you find yourself in this corporate gathering, for example, do you find yourself using the songs as an opportunity to point one another to God's wonderful deeds? Like We're in like church culture often where we want the fog machines, the lights dimmed, we're focused, we're not looking to the right, we're not looking to the left, we're wanting an emotional experience with God. Contrast the way the church views music and worship now to Colossians 3, 16 to 17, and Paul is getting at the heart of this uh, in writing to the church at Colossae. Ask yourself, is this what you do in the songs that you sing? Colossians 3, 16 to 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you have never done this before, start today in the final song after this sermon before the Lord's Supper. Look to those across from you as you sing words that will serve as a balm to their weary souls along the the path of Christ-like conformity. Words that say, He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my hesed, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. So David believed this, He encouraged encouraged God's people in this and found this to be positive reasons on why he would be vindicated from the Lord or by the Lord one day. And then lastly, we have our third and final aspect of vindication found in verses 9 to 12. It's the hope for vindication, the hope for vindication. In verses 1 to 2, David has walked in integrity and is seeking out vindication from God. And in verses 3 to 8, David is explaining more fully what it means to walk in integrity negatively and positively. And now here, verses 9 to 12, he repeats more of the same requests while also looking towards the future of a day where God is going to bring his righteous judgment on his enemies. Look at verse 9. Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with the men of bloodshed and whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. You see, King David believes that either in his lifetime or one day in the future, God is going to righteously judge his enemies who have been hurling these false accusations against him, like King Saul hurled a spear against him back in the book um, of 1 Samuel. So David in verse 1 prays to God for vindication. Verse 9 then is the immediate or the future answer for David. He's confident that God will answer his prayer, that God will right these wrongs, and he will execute justice on this injustice that has been committed against him. 
like verses 4 to 5, we are left with descriptions of these men. Described as bloodthirsty men who seem to have considerable influence and power based on what their hands are full of in verse 10, which are full of bribes. Notice that. Their hands are full of bribes against God's anointed. For David, these are ruthless, conspiring, bribe-giving, bribe-receiving, cold-blooded killers. And David is saying, God, I know that you will vindicate me according to who you are and according to your righteous judgments. Don't include me with them. Lest we should confuse this passage again with David arguing for sinlessness. Notice in verse 11, he says the following, but I live with integrity. Here it is, because someone who is sinless would not say these words. David says, redeem me and be gracious to me. What David is saying is, in this present situation, I have acted in integrity here. But he didn't always do so as we see throughout his lifetime. So he looks to the Lord for grace and redemption on that final day. And until that day, he states in the past tense in verse 1, I have lived with integrity. And so he looks to the future in verse 11 saying, but I live with integrity in this present moment and as I go into the future. Beloved, if your only hope for vindication is in this life, on this side of eternity, you could very well die disappointed. We don't know if David was vindicated by God during his lifetime or not. But we do know that God will vindicate his people on the last day. And for David, that was enough. Will that be enough for you? Is that enough for you? I'm sure you regularly sing these, this hymn, or maybe you've heard of this hymn, A Mighty Fortress by the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Listen to these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Or in verse 4 of that hymn, Luther writes, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Do you actually believe those words that you sing, church? Do you believe that God and his truth have triumphed over your enemies, over David's enemies? You know, it's really easy because our flesh definitely wants it. It itches for it. It craves for it. It's easy to read ourselves as David in this passage. And undoubtedly in the Christian life, um, we, we do experience to a degree what, 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 what we see in David's life. I'm sure many of you in different forms and different situations have experienced false accusations. But it's really easy and our flesh wants us to, to view ourselves as David in this passage. Our sin would like us to believe that we have walked in integrity our whole life. But if we're honest with ourselves, not a single person in this room, including myself, has walked imperfect integrity. And if we haven't walked in imperfect integrity or lived in imperfect integrity, that means that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard, which is his holiness, his integrity. And God does not grade on a curve, nor does he give a verdict based on a bribe. For Psalm 130 verse 3 says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, 
Who could stand? Guys, what's the answer? No one could stand before him. My friends, we are all too familiar with the men of falsehood, of hypocrites, the evildoers, and the wicked. For in our sin, we yelled to Jesus, crucify him. And unless one stands in our place, in God's heavenly courtroom, we will all be swept away in God's judgment, rightfully so, against our sin. So imagine, thinking, thinking about that, that, the introduction, imagine you are in a court of law and you are on trial for a crime that you did commit. And that crime is of the highest offense. It is cosmic treason against a holy God because of your sin in being an Adam. You know that you are guilty of this crime. The crime of failing to keep God's law and therefore perfect integrity. Now listen, a just judge, a good judge, will not let this crime go unpunished. His justice actually demands that sin be punished. Friends, our only hope for vindication comes from the Lord Jesus. He is our plea for vindication, our reasons for vindication, our only hope in this life and in the life to come for vindication. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was manifested in the flesh. The eternal son of God took on flesh in the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The only one to walk in imperfect integrity was the Christ. It was Jesus. No one more deserved the Lord's vindication against false charges than Jesus. He was conspired against by wicked men. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples for 30 pieces of silver. His hands were full of bribes. And instead of taking detours of compromise, Jesus fixed his eyes on the cross. And on that pathway to glory, Jesus was mocked. He was sped on. He was beaten for a crime he didn't commit. And he could have taken the easy way out, but he willingly and sacrificially died on the cross in the place of guilty sinners who forfeit their integrity. He breathed his last, and on the third day, God vindicated this Jesus by raising him from the dead, showing that he accepted the debt that Jesus paid that stood against sinners, a debt that, that Ashton referred to earlier in the book of Colossians, a debt, by the way, that we could never afford, none of us. This is the gospel, my friends. A non-Christian friend, you can have your charges cleared this evening. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter who your family is, what you've done in the past, you can have your charges cleared by the shed blood of Christ this evening. You can have your charges cleared, your sins forgiven, not be swept up in God's final judgment by turning away from your sins and turning by faith alone in the one who walked in imperfect integrity, who stands as the advocate at the Father's right hand for his people. This is only true for you if you have repented and believed in Jesus because he's your only hope 
So ask, will you see your need of him this evening? Friends, many of you are united to this one who has walked in imperfect integrity. Many of you are united to him by faith alone and are experiencing just simply by virtue of union with Christ, his benefits. What a comfort to know that if you are in Christ this evening, he will vindicate you like he will David, like he will, like he, uh, will do for Stephen. He will vindicate you on the last day. His faithful love displayed on the cross is ever before your eyes. He is faithful to you. He will remove your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh that beats with uh, thanksgiving and gratitude to him. He has redeemed you. He is gracious to you. He spares you of the punishment that you deserve. He plants the desire in you together with his people, the temple of the living God where his glory dwells and his presence resides. And on that final day, because of God's perfect integrity, Jesus' perfect integrity that covers you, you will not be swept away in judgment, but rather you will be swept into his everlasting arms as he declares not guilty. So I ask you this evening, which will it be? Will you choose to be swept away in judgment under a foundation that crumbles? Or will you choose to trust in the one who walked in imperfect integrity in your place, placing your feet on level, solid ground? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a just God, that you're a holy God, that you are a God who will vindicate your people Certainly that will be true of some in the present day on this side of eternity. But certainly, God, you will vindicate your people. You will right every wrong when you come to judge the living and the dead. Oh, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see that according to Psalm 26, that they themselves, because of their spiritual condition, because of their sin, that they have maliciously accused you, God. That they, in their actions, have attempted in every way to dethrone you. God, I pray that you would have mercy on sinners this evening. God, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, oh Lord, Lord, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. That you will transfer them, God, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And God, as we, your people, partake of the supper that we're about to receive after this song, Oh God, I pray that we would see as we, as we partake of the elements that they are a sweet reminder of the shed blood of Christ on behalf of his people and that one day you will vindicate your people. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not uh, anything, you don't choose the prideful, you don't choose anything that is necessarily profound in the world's eyes, but you use that which is an ordinary means of grace to save a people for yourself and to sustain them on the pathway of Christ-like conformity. God, we praise you for your word. We take it for granted so often. We pray that we would be a people marked by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.